So we're in the living room, and Hero crawls across the floor. There's a guitar on a guitar stand over in the corner. He climbs up the guitar stand, and he starts pounding on the strings. So now, what does Andrew do? Does he yank the guitar away? Does he say, no? Does he say, leave that alone? He doesn't do any of that. Megan, do you know what he did? He said one word. Gentle. And you know what? I saw Hero's face transform in front of me. And he reached out to the guitar and he went strum, strum, strum. And he reached up to some chimes on a window and he went ring, ring, ring. And in that moment, Hero made music. And it was because instead of criticizing him, he coached him. Instead of shaming his behavior, he shaped his behavior. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Sometimes it's really hard to know what to say. That might be at a funeral or a visitation when you're making conversation with a family who has just experienced terrible loss. Or it might be at work or in life when you are trying to discuss in your head, you're probably thinking dance around a really sensitive topic where you are scared to say things because they may trigger other people because you have a tendency or you have a fear of escalating a situation because you're not exactly sure or you haven't been trained or you're just human as it pertains to talking to someone about a challenging or charged situation. This is not just you. It's not just me. This is a definite fear. You've probably heard me in podcasts before where I'm like hesitating and searching for the right word so that I don't say the wrong thing. Well, let's just call this out. My friend Sam Horn would call this talking on eggshells. And to help us manage this situation, she has, as she does, written a new book. Now, Sam is not new to the podcast. I had her on several weeks ago to talk about how to manage challenging situations. And let's think of this particular episode as part two. So Sam's new book, Talking on Eggshells, arms its readers with the resources and the frameworks to be able to hit pause in a situation, to be able to confront and manage almost any challenging or charged moment with wisdom and grace and presence. Sam is one of, if not the most talented women I know at putting words into action, at shifting the meaning of a situation by simply replacing the vocabulary. She is wise. She is experienced. She has been working as an author and thought leader in this space generally, in the marketing space, in the online space for several decades. Sam is my friend. She's someone I respect deeply. And I am so excited to have her back to help us all manage this incredibly challenging situation, this idea of having to talk on eggshells. Without further ado, I welcome back Sam Horn. 
Sam Horn. Welcome back to Impact. Thank you, Megan. It's uh, you know what they call this in Hawaii. This is a hanaho when someone does a hula and it's really good and people go hanaho, hanaho, which is encore. So this is a, a hanaho encore, isn't it? It's so fantastic because I think we had this like we had this intention to talk about your new book on our last call, and then we just totally got derailed in the most beautiful, amazing way. Uh, so I'm so excited to have you back. We're going to be talking about your new book, Walking on Eggshells. I know you've got frameworks and all sorts of... Talking. What did I... Did I say walking? Talking on eggshells. <laughs> Let's just rewind here for one quick second, because this is the brilliance of Sam Horn, is that she takes these common colloquialisms and she shifts them to an entirely new medium. She interrupts the pattern as she just did for me talking on eggshells. We're going to get into this. We're going to get into your framework, some of the tools. Before we do that, now our audience just had exposure to you, Sam, and your brilliance. Can we start today by talking about the inspiration and intention behind this book? Why was this a problem you wanted to solve to crack open the leverage of that egg analogy. And then let's get into the juicy parts. So uh, here's the origin story for the book, because I really do believe in uh, every good book, every good project, every good startup, every good cause has an origin story, right? So here's mine. It started actually, if you can believe this, I'm aging myself, Megan, 30 years ago, I wrote a book called Tung Fu. And Tung Fu is how to deal with difficult people without becoming one yourself. Now, that book has been published in 17 languages around the world. China's National Public Library said it was the most checked out book in 2018. So I knew I wanted an update on Tung Fu because, you know, when I wrote it, we didn't even have cell phones back then. We didn't talk on email or on social media. So I knew I needed to update it. However, what happened was I realized this was not Tung Fu 2.0. That what this was is that there was a report from McKinsey that came out that said rudeness is getting worse and incivility is on the rise. And so many people have told me they feel like they're talking on eggshells, that they can't say anything right, that they worry about saying the wrong thing because someone's going to get triggered or mad. So that became the emphasis of this book is that in a world that is fraught with people who are quick to the trigger and and quick to get angry. How can we say the right thing the first time instead of thinking of it on the way home? Amazing. And, you know, I have had so many situations. I, I find often I'm on the podcast. I'm like, I want to make sure I navigate the piece accordingly. And you're and you're you're trying to reach to the depths of your brain to find not just the right words to communicate, but and even saying that, I'm like, I'm not sure sometimes we're allowed to say the right words, but like the right words so that we maximize respect for the conversation takes time. It's hard to do on the fly. And isn't it ironic? We're not taught this in school. We're taught math. We're taught history and science. You know, we're taught calculus. You know, are we taught what to say when we don't know what to say? Are we taught what to do when someone's blaming us for something that's not our fault? You know, are we taught what to do when people are complaining and won't stop and listen? No, we're not taught. Hopefully, this is what this book teaches. And you're so right. I'm like really, really good at coming up with the comebacks 20 minutes later in my car by myself while I'm listening to a fantastic song. But in that moment, it's almost like we get put into a fight or flight reaction 
we just can't access the parts of our brain that allow us that appropriate language, or we have emotion plus language, and it's just, it's a big muddle of a moment. You know, you may remember from our our last time together, I I believe in juxtaposition, right? If we have a piece of paper, and unless someone's driving, I hope they take notes, right now, get a piece of paper and put a vertical line down the center. And over on the left, put what you just said, is fight, flight, or freeze, right? Because it's actually three things, right? We either someone yells at us and we want to yell back at them or, you know, someone yells at us and we want to get the heck out of there or freeze. We just don't know what to do. So we don't say anything. And over on the right, please put flow. (laughs) We want to turn fight and flight and freeze into flow so that in the moment we can say something that helps instead of hurts. Can we just open up and acknowledge some of the situations? where this will come into play so that because everyone's going to pull on their own life circumstances. Can you throw a few key examples at us in terms of where we are going to put this framework into play? And then let's jump into the framework itself. You bet. In fact, I'll just give you the framework right now. We're going to talk. I mean, this is talking on eggshells. So it's T-O-E, right? I mean, let's give people a hook on which to hang a memory. And you're a learning designer as well. And you know that when we give people an easy to remember and hard to forget framework that we're able to think in the moment, right? We're able to keep our cool in the heat of the moment and say something once again, instead of having, I wish I said syndrome. So T, we're going to talk about the first step, which is to think before you speak. And now let's use the situation about something that goes wrong. And you know me, I like to tell a story first that shows how this materializes in the real world. And then we'll unpack it with the words to lose and the words to use. So I was visiting my son, Andrew, and his wife, Mickey, in New York a few years ago. And their son, Hero, was about one year old. So he was just kind of coming out of the crawling, creeping stage to grabbing everything and like standing up and walking around, right? So we're in the living room and Hero crawls across the floor. There's a guitar on a guitar stand over in the corner. He climbs up the guitar stand and he starts pounding on the strings. So now what does Andrew do? Does he yank the guitar away? Does he say, no? Does he say, leave that alone? He doesn't do any of that. Megan, do you know what he did? I don't. He said one word. Gentle. And you know what? I saw Hero's face transform in front of me. And he reached out to the guitar and he went strum, strum, strum. And he reached up to some chimes on a window and he went ring, ring, ring. And in that moment, Hero made music. And it was because instead of criticizing him, he coached him with one word, right? Instead of shaming his behavior, he shaped his behavior. Instead of causing Hero to lose face over that mistake, Hero learned from that mistake. And that is how, when we think before we speak, on your notes right now, put over on the left, criticize, put over on the right, coach. Put over on the left, shame behavior. Put over on the right, shape behavior. Put over on the left, lose face. People either lose face over their mistakes or they learn from their mistakes. Put over on the left, resent. 
especially if we tell people what they should have done, they will resent us even if we're right. Over on the right, put the word respect. Because see, if we say gentle instead of stop doing that, (laughs) you know, or yanking the car away, the guitar away, or getting mad or telling, you know, is now they know what to do right instead of wrong. So even two more over on the left, put wrong over on the right column, put right. And over on the left column, put stop. And over on the right column, put start. How we think in the moment is to focus on what we want someone to start doing instead of what we want them to stop. Right? Your thoughts? So much easier. The one that really got me was this idea of shaming to shape. Because even in some of the challenging conversations that we are seeing in our landscape and ecosystem right now, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of pent up energy in a lot of the imbalances and injustice that we have seen and is coming to resolution at this point. But it is actually really hard to shape the behavior because there's so much anger that's coming out that what's resulting is a lot of shaming. And the shaming then, you know, perpetuates the you can see in real life how not having a framework is actually not moving us forward. I think it's actually creating these encampments uh, that are more entrenched. So I'm kind of excited to know what's happening with the O. (laughs) Okay, just one more thought about that. We're both lucky enough to know Mary Morrissey. And my favorite quote from Mary Morrissey is to hold the vision, not the circumstances. And when something goes wrong, if we say, Um, you better not be late again, you know, or stop interrupting me or stop hitting your sister, you know, or something. We perpetuate the dreaded behavior because we're focusing on the circumstances. And what you just said is when we think, no, what do we want? What is the vision? That is when people can hear it and move toward it because they're not feeling shoulded or shamed. Love it. So true. It's like the basis of every piece of of manifestation work anywhere is focus on what you want, not on what you don't want. And I hope at work we're thinking about this with our coworkers and with our customers, you know, as you should have called and told us that you, you know, we're going to be not turn that project in on time, right? Does that serve any good purpose, Megan? (laughs) Right? Well, and it's so interesting. I find too, in, you know, in speaking to people, I almost feel like they can maintain control all day at work. And they're like, I'm so specific in what I say. And then they let their guard down in their car, in their Twitter feed, with their kids. And we revert to this more primal behavior. We let all of our anger and our frustrations ooze out over our communication styles. That might be a different framework in a different time, but we keep compartmentalizing and that energy has to go somewhere. And it's sort of, it's sabotaging the effectiveness of our communication. What you said, I'll always remember, I worked with someone who worked in the the tax department in the state of Hawaii. And they often had lines of like two hours long just to get into their office. You know, of course, who wants to go to the tax office to figure out their property tax or, you know, their arrears or getting audited or whatever. So all day long, she dealt with people who were angry and who were blaming her for what was wrong. Then she took our Tung Fu class and she said, you know, Sam, what you just said, Megan, is that all day long, I have to be on my best behavior, right? I mean, and it's intense and it takes a lot of energy and discipline. So guess what happens? I go home and I am burned out and I treat my husband and my kids worse than I treat a complete stranger that I've never even met before. 
And she said, no, no, no. <laughs> let's, as you said, let's focus on what's important and treating the people we care about with the care that they deserve mm-hmm. and, and you know the compassion they deserve instead of being run out of energy and just saying whatever's on the tip of our tongue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ready for the O? I was like, do we get the O now, Sam? You get the O, write it down. Own versus other. Own versus other. And this is about how owning our response instead of othering people. Because when we other people and say, well, it's their fault, or they're the one who dropped the ball, or they're the one with a really ridiculous political opinion or something like that, as soon as we other people, then labeling and judging is going to come out in our language. Let me give you my favorite example of this is that I had a chance to go to the UN and hear Peter Diamandis speak. And Peter said, there's two kinds of people. He said, there are red capers who fight evil and injustice. And then there are blue capers who are forced for good. And I thought about it. He said, red capers are like our superheroes and we need them. And blue capers, they don't fight evil and injustice. However, what they do, like X Prize, is X Prize, you know, there's a problem and they look for people who are coming up with solutions and they showcase them and they fund them and they get the media. And I was sitting there and I thought, well, actually, there's three kinds of people. There's red capers and blue capers, and then there's gray capers. (laughs) Gray capers don't fight evil and injustice, and they're not a force for good. They just complain about everything and they don't do anything about it. So would you like an example of how we can own what's happening instead of othering the other person that they're wrong, that they're stubborn, that they're not listening, etc. right? All of those are othering. I have a, a very good friend who was an icon in the speaking industry. She was president of the National Speakers Association. She was renowned for her ability. If she met you in the hall, even if she was running the convention, she would give you her laser focus. She was extraordinary. We had monthly calls for years. And a few years ago, we had a call. And out of the blue, she kind of voiced her opinion that this was the best president we had ever had and that he was the best thing that ever happened to our country. Megan, I couldn't believe it because I'm on the opposite of the political spectrum. I do not believe that at all. And I couldn't believe she believed it. And it was stunning to me that someone I respect and enjoy and admire so much could have such a polar opposite belief. And when I got off the phone that day, I didn't know if we were ever going to talk again, even though we had known each other for 25 years. Thank heaven, something occurred to me that gave me a way to own the solution instead of othering the problem is that I grew up in a small town, more horses than people. There was quicksand out there. This is a very mountain valley in Southern California, quicksand. Now, as you know, quicksand, if you and your horse get in quicksand, the more you struggle, the more it sucks you in. It can be very dangerous. And I realized that this was going to be a quicksand conversation between the two of us. Was I going to change her mind? No. Was she going to change my mind? No. Were we going to throw away a 25-year friendship because we had diametrically opposed political opinions? No. We declared politics a quicksand conversation because there was so much else we had in common rather than in conflict. There was so much else that we had to share instead of this one thing we didn't. So, Megan, do you have someone, and 
you really have a good relationship except for this one thing. How can we own the solution instead of other the problem, huh? As you were talking about that, well, one, I could think of family members who have the exact same situation happening with respect to politics. They're like, I just, I cannot handle the fact that we have divergent opinions. I'm really curious about people who have different opinions than me and and what enabled that to be shaped. But for me, when I do recognize I'm triggered by someone being really different uh, or having a different idea or I believe strongly in something, I really try to lean into the curiosity piece. That's my compensation mechanism so that I don't get into like curiosity over convincing if we're going to use the same framework. And, and, you know, there's one part of what you were talking about as well. And I, I just came off a training. I was sharing this with you when we were stepping onto our conversation today. And one of the, the mindset pieces that I talked to this group about was this notion of radical responsibility and self-authorization. Wow. And self-authorization, in my mind, is you giving yourself permission to make decisions. And what came out of the conversation was people are scared to own decision-making because it disallows the ability to blame other people. Well, my husband said it was a good idea. I called my mom and my dad, and they both thought I should invest in the program, and it didn't work, so it's on them too. It is, we're diversifying and we're, we're disseminating the blame and the responsibility. It was just a really interesting conversation. And, and what you're talking about reminds me of that. This idea of ownership and what we can do, like this is a very mature concept. It actually requires a strong sense of self. What do we do when we're not there yet? Oh, well, first, I loved your elaboration on this as well, because this is the divisiveness in our country is literally tearing us apart, isn't it? Agreed. And it is it is because we do not understand something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, is that I'll always remember seeing her interviewed on CBS Sunday Morning, which is my favorite TV program because it showcases man and woman's humanity to man and women. And the reporter said, you know, I hear that you go to opera with Judge Scalia. Now, how can that be? Because the two of you are very different opinions about the political process and and political parties. And she said six words. Are you ready? I'm ready. We are different. We are one. We are different. We are one. Is that part of the maturity is understanding that different is not wrong. And especially if we come to a place where we realize we are not going to change their mind and they are not going to change ours. So would we rather have a relationship with this person? Do we have more in common than in conflict? And if we do, we choose to focus on what we have in common instead of what we have in conflict. We just declare those quicksand conversations. And I do not think that that's a failure or retreating or that we can't have a hard conversation. We thought it through. In fact, in the Talking on Eggshell book, I have criteria about when is something a quicksand conversation. So you don't, this is not avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's informed avoidance is what it is, which I think is smart. As a kid, I was always taught there's sort of three things we don't talk about. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about sex and we don't talk about money. And not as in we don't talk about it in our family because we talk about all of those things within our family. But those are not conversation starters out in the real world. And that was that was messaging I had from when I was a really young kid. Like there's just better options to find common ground than starting with those three. 
I love what you just said, Megan, because you said better options. Because part of what talking on eggshells is, is triaging our time and our attention, right? As you just said, there's a lot of ways we can solve this problem, or there's a lot of ways we can preserve this relationship, or there are a lot of ways that we can coexist in peace on this committee, right? And if we are open to those options, instead of being stuck in a rut around this one issue, I think, you know, we're all going to get along a lot better. Absolutely. I don't want to jump the gun. Can we jump into, can we jump into the E so we can round the corner on the framework? Was that a rhetorical question? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Be clear, Megan. All right, let's go into E. Okay. E is for empathy. (laughs) E is for empathy. It is said that anytime we're frustrated, we're only seeing things from our point of view. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Here's my example, and then we'll flesh it out. I am very fortunate to have an 85-year-old aunt who still volunteers at a hospital five days a week. And, And she was on the front desk during COVID. And I interviewed her for the Talking on Eggshell book. And I said, what was it like? And she said it was really stressful, especially because they had a policy of no visits, no visitors if you had COVID or only one visitor per patient per day, even if you were in the hospital for something else. And so as you can imagine, a lot of people were upset and a lot of people were taking it out on her. And I said, can you think of a a specific situation? She said, yes. She said, last week, she's on the front desk and a woman runs through the doors. She has her phone and she says, I need to see my daughter. She just texted me. She's in the ER. She's had an accident. Well, my Aunt Kay called the ER. Yes, the daughter was there, but there was someone already with her. So Aunt Kay had to tell the mother that she could not get in to see her daughter. She lost it, and she's crying and screaming. And my Aunt Kay says these two powerful words, instead of there's nothing, put over on the left, there's nothing I can do. She said, let me see if there's something I could do. She went from there's nothing to there's something. She called the ER back and she said, who is with the daughter? It was the Uber driver who had brought in the young lady from the accident. Well, Aunt Kay was able to explain the circumstances to him, thank him for caring enough to do this. He left and the mother got to see her daughter. And it was because over on the left, please put how rude, how rude, right? I can't believe they're saying this. Over on the right, put these four words. How would I feel? How would I feel if my daughter were in the ER and I was being told I could not see her? I'd probably be a little upset too, right? And it moves us over on the left. Megan, please put contempt. Over on the right, please put compassion. It moves us from contempt you know, why are you taking this out on me? I'm not the one who made the policy to compassion. How would I feel? It gives us, it moves us from antipathy to empathy. Well, just as you said, contempt versus compassion. I just, I feel like there's so much energy to words and the energy and vibration of the word contempt. Like you can just, it's almost worse than anger. It's more powerful than just anger's frenetic. The opposite of that, compassion, again, like a totally different vibration in terms of where they can go. And 
What's amazing to me is that you can just actually shift your thinking around the situation and move into that entirely different energy. That's what came to me as you were sharing that. See, Megan, you really get the the quintessence of this book talking on eggshells because it absolutely has words. What do you say when you don't know what to say? So it has the pragmatic tips. Although what you keep bringing up is the mindset and the heart set, right? Right. Now, how can we choose to be kind to someone who's being cruel to us, right? How can we choose to focus on what we have in common instead of what we have in conflict? And I think you may know that Dr. John Gottman has done a lot of research on couples, and he has found the number one precursor to divorce. You probably know what it is. I have some thoughts. Go. I was going to say contempt. I feel like contempt is is one of the, the key pieces. Number one, far and above. He can predict when he interviews people, if one of them is rolling their eyes, right? Is that the sign of contempt or whatever? Here we go again. Oh, you know, that, that Bob's doing his thing, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And as soon as we have contempt, we have no compassion because we have come to a conclusion that they're clueless or that they don't know what they're doing or that they're stupid or whatever. And it is the end of compassion and it will lead to conflicts. So you want to know one of my favorite stories about it kind of wraps up all of this, using the right yeah. words, having the mindset and the heart set. and turning contempt into compassion? I do. Of course I do. (laughs) Yeah, that was my rhetorical question. I was going to say, is that a rhetorical question? (laughs) There was a man who wrote me and he said, you know, Sam, you had talked about how would I feel? And I started thinking about my mother who was in a restaurant. And he said, you know, it had gotten to the point where I dreaded driving out there every Saturday because all she does is complain. She complains about her roommate. She complains about the food. She complains that no one ever comes to see her. He said, I had to force myself to make that drive. He said, when you put those words up there, I asked myself, how would I feel if I were in a bed 18 hours a day, seven days a week? How would I feel if I had to live next to someone I didn't even like? And she played the TV so loud, I couldn't even hear myself think. How would I feel if you know, I didn't like the food they served me and I couldn't get up and go to the refrigerator to fix something different or go to the store. He said, I realized, you know, that I can listen to it for a couple hours every Saturday. He said, but you had also had something that transformed the situation. You had said, instead of complaining about what you don't like, create what you would like. And I had told him that Queen Elizabeth said, good memories are our second chance at happiness. I said, take out a photo album. The reason why she's complaining is because she doesn't have anything else to talk about. And he emailed me on Monday and he said, Sam, I took out a photo album. One picture of this crazy uncle we had had us laughing so hard, tears were coming down our face. One picture of this mountain cabin we used to go to every summer brought back a whole hour of memories. And he said, Sam, you know, from now on, when I'm frustrated with someone, I will remember create what I do want instead of complaining about what I don't want. Beautiful. I was like, we could go in a whole other direction, but I kind of feel like we just did it all right there and tied this beautiful bow on top. Sam, can you just give us a few other sneak peeks in terms of what we're going to be able to get out of talking on eggshells? What 
other wisdom are you going to unlock the readers? You know, one of the things we're going to talk about is what I call ISA, which is interpersonal situational awareness. You know, Nelson Mandela said, stop pulling people out of the river, go upstream and find them before they fall in, right? 100%. (laughs) So part of talking on eggshells certainly is what to do in the moment. It's also, though, how can we, ready for, I'm partial, I love this phrase, you ready? How can we read and lead the room, (laughs) right? How can we, before we walk into a fractious meeting, before we walk into a contentious negotiation, how can we go upriver <laughs> and, and predict what might happen and get ahead of it? So we are not just reading the room. We are leading the room, you know, and I'll give you a, I'll give a, a story on myself where I did not do that and almost suffered the consequences if it hadn't been for a wonderful mentor. I had the privilege of working for Rod Laver on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. He won the Grand Slam of tennis twice. So I was in my 20s, and yet I was representing the the Labor Emerson Tennis Facility on the board of this big resort community. Well, Megan, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I was young. I was so full of ideas. So the first couple of board meetings, I'm saying, and we can do this, and we can do this. <laughs> you know? There was probably a little eye rolling in the. And finally, Dale Schutte, who is the GM of the Palmetto Dunes Hyatt, pulled me aside, and he said. Sam, he said, you might want to sit on your hands for the next couple of meetings. Now, I had not heard that phrase before. I really didn't know what he was talking about. But it was like, Sam, everyone in that room is senior to you. Everyone in that room has worked here 10 years more than you have. From next couple meetings, listen more than you talk. And I realized that I had not been situationally aware. I had not been reading the room. I had been thinking about what I wanted to say, what I wanted to contribute, convinced it would add value, but I wasn't looking at the expressions in the room. I wasn't asking myself if it was appropriate. I wasn't asking myself if it was relevant to the conversation of the moment. So thanks to him, I learned ISA. It's not just situational awareness. It's interpersonal situational awareness so that we are responding appropriately to what's happening instead of just only thinking of what we want to say or do. I think we spoke about this when we were chatting last time, but I feel like one of the tools society needs right now is the capacity to engage in discernment. Everything's black and white. And it either fits in my framework or it doesn't fit in my framework. And I feel like what we've been speaking about today are actually tools to enable you to navigate the world with discernment, where we think before we are talking, we are owning the responsibility, we're putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, all of these in the form of empathy, because I want to make sure I honor the acronym. Um, All of these things are tools that enable us to navigate with greater discernment. And to me, discernment is like the word that describes wisdom. When someone can walk into a room and and read the room or they can naturally lead or they know how to keep their mouth shut, there's an experience there, but it is there's tangible tools behind it. And I feel like that's a huge part of what you've uh, shared in this book. Megan, I love you just captured the essence of the book. I knew that I needed a hook on which to hang a memory. You know, what is the core principle of this book? And I finally came up with it. It's proactive grace, proactive Mm. grace, because think about Aunt Kay. She didn't just say to the woman, I am so sorry. I can only imagine how you feel. 
you know, believe me. So that's grace, right? In the mm-hmm. moment is con- cho- choosing. It's not enough on its own, right? Yeah. No proactive. What can we do? How can we move it forward? What are other options we haven't explored? Think about with my, my good friend in the quicksand conversation. We could have ended a 25 year friendship over this one thing where we were both locked in our positions, right? Or we could have proactive grace and honor what matters. We all know the Harvard study about close relationships. That's what will matter at the end of our life. How can we create them? How can we keep them? Sam, I've got one last question for you. What do you want the legacy of this work to be in the world? You've created so many beautiful narratives and books and stories and teachings. What do you want the legacy of this one to be? Hmm. Well, well, thank you for that wonderful question. I, my hope and my goal is for us to understand that life is a, is a gift. And that as the Harvard study found that the number one precursor of a healthy, happy life are good relationships. And that in a world right now, you know, the statistics about isolation and depression and people feeling very alone. I believe that this book is my pebble in the pond of my legacy of how we can, even in challenging times, choose words that help instead of hurt and that shape instead of shame and and that uh, coach instead of criticize. So that whether it's with our kids or with our significant other, whether our customers, our clients, whether a stranger in the street, that we can go first that we can be the one to set the example of proactive grace. Because when we do, I think most people are motivated to respond in kind. What a beautiful place (laughs) to finish this conversation. Sam Horn, where can I direct people to get their hands on talking on eggshells and follow along with everything else you're up to in the world? Well, I hope you'll, it's easy to remember, go to samhorn.com. And on there, we have uh, Talking on Eggshell just got a fabulous review in Publisher Weekly. Uh, the Marie Forleo and uh, John Mackey of Whole Foods and Jack Canfield have all given it glowing endorsements. So we have on there some videos and some articles with some tips. And if you pre-order the book, have an opportunity to come to a private uh, fireside chat. So uh, I really hope that you go to samhorn.com and I hope what you find there kickstarts this commitment to being the quality of person we want to be, even when other people aren't. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Sam, it is always a pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. And thank you once again. I absolutely love the way you show up, your questions, your thoughtful contributions, your, your mind and your heart are a joy. Thank you, friend. I appreciate that so much. You bet. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact. Impact.